Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Here you go. Here you go. Legend. That's the nothing personal word of the day. We lost a legend today, Don Shula. 33 years as an NFL coach, larger-than-life personality here in South Florida. Passed away today, 90 years old, 1930 to 2020. One of the great things, I mean, I'm lucky in every way. There's no doubt about that. But one of the great pleasures in, in all the years I was in sports in Florida, the number of times I had an opportunity to meet Don Shula over the years, more than a handful, had him in the suite for a game, had him on the field several times at several charity events. He was, for a legend, one of the most interesting and nicest people you'll come across, right? So you spend time, let's say, meeting a Bill Parcells, who was my coaching when I was a Giant fan, so you got a chance to meet Bill Parcells, who won two Super Bowls for you, a little more ornery, little less social, understandable. But Don Shula would spend time with underprivileged kids. He'd spend time with our fans. He'd spend time with people who were just so much less fortunate than he was, understanding that he was carrying with him the pleasure of being a 33-season NFL coach, the winningest coach in NFL history. This is not just an ordinary coach. Two Super Bowl wins, Perfect season here in Miami. But what he means to this community, it's a big loss. And you knew as the years had passed, the last few years, he was getting older. He was in a wheelchair, a motorized wheelchair, but he never stopped his smile. He never stopped being friendly. And what I found most interesting about Don Shula is that he never had the trappings of success that many players, executives, and coaches have who have Super Bowl or World Series or NBA championship rings on their fingers. He wore his ring as a reminder, not to himself, but for other people to get to feel as though they were a champion too. And I learned ring etiquette from Don Shula. When I wear my World Series ring, I let anyone hold it. I let anyone try it on, anyone take pictures. I don't keep it in a vault or a safe. I keep it around my finger. I keep it with me. I wear it to events, not because I want people to know that I won a World Series, but I know when I was young, all I wanted was to be able to look at a championship ring because you hear about the ring. 
And Don Shula taught me about rings and that it's okay to let people touch your ring, share your ring. Such a wonderful man, wonderful family. I'm noticing that here in Miami, where I am, or Fort Lauderdale, that people are uh, taken aback a little bit. Because when someone like this dies, you don't actually, you know it's coming, but it's the end that just seems sudden. You don't expect to get that alert. And then it comes and you start reflecting. It's also a reflection on where the Dolphins are currently and thinking about where that franchise has gone since Don Shula was the coach, the number of coaches they've had, the lack of wins. Don Shula had six Super Bowls, went two and four, but he got there six times. Rest in peace, Don Shula, and thank you. Thank you for making a difference at a time when not everybody does. Well, yesterday was a typical Sunday for me, the last two Sundays. Binging Ozark, watched all of season three. I will review that tomorrow. And then watching the two episodes of The Last Dance. It was episode five and six of the 10-part documentary. It's supposedly a documentary, supposedly, about the final season of the Chicago Bulls era of championships under Jordan, the 1997-1998 season, when they were going for their second three-peat in eight years. It would have been eight in a row in theory had Jordan not left basketball to play baseball for two years. So going in, you figure it's going to be about that season. As we've learned over the first four episodes, there's a lot of backstory. They're talking, it's more about Jordan and then some of the players. They did something on Pippen last week was on Rodman. So they started off this episode and I found it to be a problem. I didn't know what was coming and there's a lot to break down. A lot was packed into these two one hour episodes. I was a little surprised that they got on the let's exploit Kobe Bryant and his tragic death train because that's what I felt they did. It felt rushed. It felt out of order. It felt forced. They did two or three minutes about Kobe and about Kobe gave an interview where he said that there is no me without Jordan. They did a locker room behind the scenes at an all-star game where Kobe was young, maybe 19 years old. And what it is to be initiated into the league, which is something that is a big point when we talk about the G League and these players skipping college and going to the G League trying to get ready to be an NBA player because there is hazing, recognizing that Kobe was going to be good. <clears throat> but if we've learned one thing about Michael Jordan, he is the best. He wanted to be the best. He knew he was the best. And if you thought to come at him, he wasn't going to have it. So having Kobe on it, I felt they were trying to get me sad. It didn't work. And as I was beginning to ponder whether I'm angry that they were trying to get me sad, they moved on from it relatively quickly. And that was the end of Kobe Bryant on episode five. I was surprised to read and hear about the start of Air Jordan. I actually learned yesterday stuff that I did not know things that I did not and had not Googled. Were you aware, if you watch the show you are now, were you aware that Michael Jordan went shopping and he went shopping for a sneaker deal? His agent, who I've known, God, I must have met him 25 years ago. I don't like when I do that with Coca on the line. It makes me feel old. David Falk was a power agent, Jordan's agent. 
it certainly made him out yesterday as though Falk had been the driving force behind the sneaker deal. Could it have been Jordan's parents who made him take the Nike meeting? Could it have been the fact that Adidas and any other Converse who was the main sneaker company back then, and they showed an old commercial with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, who were Converse guys? Could it be that David Falk or Michael Jordan had an idea of what the Air Jordans would be? I was happy to see that David Falk said no. They expected a few million in sales, and there was about over 125 million in sales the first year. The start of Air Jordan, if you go back, was the start of a phenomenon, and they went through the Spike Lee commercials as Mars Blackman. It's got to be the shoes. You've heard me say that on Nothing Personal. It's got to be the shoes. That didn't exist before Michael Jordan. It didn't exist before Air Jordans. And how the name came to pass, Air Jordans, it's interesting to me that it's now a billion-dollar business that Jordan has a stake in. It's what made Jordan a billionaire. It's certainly not owning a basketball team that did it. It wasn't his salary. It was having an equity stake in something. Good business lesson, folks. If you have a chance or a choice between salary or equity, take the hybrid. Believe in the company you're working for. Take stock options. Take an equity position if you have a choice. Bet on yourself having chosen the right company. When you get involved early in a company or early in a product like shoes or Air Jordans, the number of companies that don't work, remember the old, uh, there was a company that tried shoes called And One, started by two actually alums of where I went to high school. Very good company, not sure the shoes worked. Are the Under Armour shoes working? Maybe, maybe not. Reebok, maybe, maybe not. Converse, where are they? You're not going to get it right all the time. But Michael Jordan did get it right. And what we learned in the documentary is that he became, through Air Jordan, through his deal with Nike, he made a decision. And his decision is that he was going to be an endorser, an endorser of products. He was going to choose his portfolio, and it's what we call a blue chip portfolio with Nike, who was nothing more than a running shoe company at that time when he first started, McDonald's, Coke, And he was going to make sure that he was fiercely protective of his brand. He had an agent he worked with. He took certain deals and he didn't take others. And it was all for the purpose of building this mountain that he would stand on, that he would be able to rule all he could see and stop people from climbing the mountain. But what Jordan realized And it manifested itself throughout this documentary, the first six episodes. Jordan realized that being an endorser without being a success in the sport that you play, that's not a trade that the consumer is willing to make. He knew immediately, and I give him all the credit in the world, that he knew that in order to keep printing money, which he wanted, undoubtedly money was the driving force that he needed to be successful, win championships. He needed to be conflict-free. Conflict-free is what he decided to be in an era where conflict was rampant and continues to be, where people make choices 
on where they stand politically or socially. And what interested me is thinking about, let's say, a Colin Kaepernick who made the opposite choice or a Muhammad Ali who chose to be an activist, who chose to be political. In this documentary, they brought Barack Obama on screen to excuse Jordan's lack of taking positions, his lack of, shall we say, anything that could wipe away his Teflon, he needed to deal with and get rid of. Does that sound familiar to you? Can you think of a current day player who uses the Michael Jordan method more or a current owner? Yeah, don't think too hard. Derek Jeter is the exact same way. That sort of Teflon, that desire to control your brand and your image is the way you grow your business. It comes with winning and it stays with perfection. But the price, and we started to see the price in yesterday's show, the price of it is higher than most people are willing to pay, except in the abstract. Every athlete I came across wanted more endorsements, except the athletes who had the most. Every athlete I came across wanted to increase his public profile except for those who had the highest already public profile. The original term, the grass is greener, I think that started with fame. I think that started with wealth. What you don't realize when you are building your brand and becoming a world-class athlete, and this is before social media, you don't realize the loneliness that comes with that fame. I was struck by the reality of Michael Jordan's life on the road because I've seen it. I've been on the road with teams. I've been on the road with Ichiro, Barry Bonds, other players whose fame transcends their sport. When you see Michael Jordan in his hotel, smoking a cigar with room service fruit, with the TV on, in the small part of his suite, because there's a bedroom and then a small parlor area. And he tells you that his peace comes only in his room. I believe him because it's absolutely true. We don't much care as fans or people in the media about the loneliness that fame brings because we're so busy trying to exploit it. We're so busy trying to get a soundbite. We're so busy trying to get an interview, an inside look. The purpose of the inside look is to show readers and listeners and followers that, in fact, it's not lifestyles of the rich and famous, that the trappings of that fame and wealth are potentially a trade that, in fact, we wouldn't want to make, where the reality is that they have the normal feelings we do, the normal feelings of loneliness, the normal feelings of walls closing in, the normal feelings of not knowing whether your friends are with you because they like you, love you, or need you, or because they want something from you. The normal feeling that athletes have and executives have and other people have around the country and the world of trying to understand your base and figuring out how to grow your base and protect your base. 
And when you grow in the way Jordan did, I don't think you realize unless you live through it. And the documentary touches on it, but doesn't do it well enough. Michael Jordan was a phenomenon before there were social media phenomenons. He was world famous in a way that no current day athlete is. You could say Ronaldo, and I know Coke is going to say it in my ear, or Messi. You could look at their Twitter followers and their Instagram followers. You could look at Tom Brady, who every time he sneezes gets 100,000, 500,000 likes. It's nothing. Tom Brady is to Michael Jordan at their each individual peaks as Matthew Coca is to Tom Brady. That's how different it is to have been Michael Jordan, to be like Mike. They went through the commercials for Gatorade, be like Mike. Everyone wanted to be like Mike because they thought being Michael Jordan, you could fly through the air. You were a godlike. You were untouchable. You were infallible. You could do no wrong. But Michael Jordan got stuck. He got stuck in two ways. They did a whole thing during the episode about the March 1998 game. Final game in Madison Square Garden for Michael Jordan, in theory. He wore his original Air Jordans, his first ever pair. Not not an old pair, but his first type. And they showed him wearing them, and it was a brilliant marketing move because it was all about Michael and what he was doing to market himself and to market his products. He talked about how much his feet hurt after that game, and I was at that game. I remember watching him, and I didn't think much. I wasn't a sneaker guy. I had didn't own any Air Jordans. But I remember thinking to myself, and I was 30 years old, I remember thinking, God, those shoes look old. I didn't know that it was the original. At the time, we didn't know watching the game what he was doing. We learned about it later. Didn't know about his hurt, bleeding feet. Reminded me of the Kurt Schilling sock, except Michael never took his shoes off. And the documentary went through this and tried to say that him building his brand had a hiccup or two along the way. And they started by marrying one hiccup to his brand of shoes. And that hiccup was a quote that will live forever in infamy when Michael Jordan said, quote, Republicans buy sneakers too. Now that quote for people who weren't living at that time, they don't understand what's the, what's the context of that. That was a major moment. There was a Senate race involving Jesse Helms in North Carolina where Michael went to school. Jesse Helms was a racist. There's no disputing that fact. He was running against an African-American Democrat named Matt Gant. And people wanted Michael Jordan to come out and take a position. Does that sound familiar? Michael Jordan said, I'm not taking a position. His mother asked him to take a position. Barack Obama explained in the documentary why he didn't take a position. Understanding that. Understanding that taking a position has a risk. Do you know why at CBS, the third rail of any show, 
the third rail of a show like Nothing Personal is if I would come out and tell you definitively where I am politically and tell people who didn't agree with me that they were wrong or tell people who didn't agree with me that they had no right to have their belief in this democracy. I can be political from time to time, and I'm not embarrassed about what I think. But my job isn't to tell you what to think. My job is to give you things to think about. My job at Nothing Personal is to set the table so that you can make informed decisions. My job is to tell you exactly what's happening, not what people spin to you, but exactly what's happening, and then let you decide. That's what we wanted from Jordan. You don't have to tell me that you are in favor of Jesse Helms or that you're against him. But it is your job, as it is all of our jobs. It has nothing to do with fame or fortune. It's a platform issue. The bigger the platform, the greater the responsibility. I take that seriously. I've had a platform for 18 years in public. I haven't gotten it right all the time, made plenty of mistakes, publicly and privately. But I take the platform seriously, and I use it to try to make a difference when possible. Michael Jordan had that opportunity, and instead he chose to say, Republicans buy sneakers too. Meaning, I'm not going to say anything anti-Jesse Helms, because why would I do that? That's a market share for me. When that happened at the time, I remember thinking to myself, and I hadn't yet started and I was not in sports, but I remember thinking to myself, I get it. Not everybody needs to take a position. But I wasn't yet mature, sophisticated enough to realize that the difference between taking a position and being informative so others may choose to take a position is critical. And Jordan didn't have the right advisors around him. And worse today, he stuck to it. He was interviewed today and said, I'm a basketball player. I'm not a political figure. I'm not an activist. I'm here to play basketball. Well, you're right, Michael. You are there to play basketball. Now you're there to be an owner. But the problem, Michael, is that the very foundation that gives you the ability to smoke the cigars that you smoke and live in the house where you live and do the things that you do and continue to make money off the sneakers that kids are buying and sometimes stealing is that you have a greater social and political responsibility. That's the trade-off. Yes, there's lonely nights in hotels. Yes, there is zero privacy. Yes, you've got the trappings, pun intended, of fame and wealth. You want to trade? It's your choice. But if you want to continue to be paid the way you're paid, you had a chance during this documentary to actually come out and say, if I could give one bit of advice to my younger self, I would have told my younger self to educate people about that race in North Carolina, not just make a donation to the Democratic candidate, but to use my platform to explain to people why racism is wrong. The very thing that he suffered from, many suffer from, he had that chance and he didn't take it. And he proved 
time and time again that it was about his deals. There was a huge segment about the Dream Team. Fascinating. Dream Team was the 1992 Olympic team in Barcelona. We talked about it last week on Nothing Personal. Isaiah Thomas was not invited. Michael Jordan claims he had no say. Rod Thorne goes on camera and says, I made the team. Jordan didn't make the team. Michael Jordan admits that he asked who's all playing and wants us to believe that we fell off the turnip truck. We were born yesterday thinking that Michael Jordan called Rod Thorne and said, hey, who's playing? Rod Thorne gave a list and Michael said, okay, speak to you later. That's not how that call went. Michael Jordan explicitly said, if Isaiah Thomas is on this team, I'm not playing. And if I don't play, I've got magic with me, Bird. I've got Patrick. Yeah, you could have Leitner. You can have Stockton coming off a broken leg. Take Barkley, too. It's no dream team. Jordan could have come out and actually been honest in his interview, but he stuck to his story. I had nothing to do with Isaiah Thomas. Dream team. A lot of stories about the cards they played, the gambling they did, the golfing they did. Great video of a competitive practice, which was really the most competition they had. And they even showed a little bit of an underbelly with the United States versus Croatia and a young player named Tony Kukoc, who nobody could even pronounce his name back then. They kept calling him Kukok. Sounded like Samson on Nothing Personal, unable to pronounce any names. Tony Kukoc was loved by Jerry Krause, a theme that we have seen now for six episodes in this Jordan-produced documentary, that Jerry Krause was the bane of Jordan's existence. He even made a short joke again yesterday, last night, when they were celebrating a championship. Coca said, leave it alone. Don't put it in the show. It's in the show, Coca. Is there a reason that Jordan had to put in the show that they have on video that Krauss wanted a cigar and Jordan says to him, you can't smoke a cigar. That'll stunt your growth, Jerry. It's bad enough that he said it at the time. Did that add to the documentary? Do you think that makes you look funny, Michael? It doesn't. So the dream team goes on. Tony Kukoc was going to be a Chicago bull. And Jordan and Pippen made it their life's work against Croatia to make sure that Kukoc would have the worst game ever in an early round game. Playing man-to-man defense, hand in his face. Kukoc had a terrible first game. He was a kid. Kukoc was a talented lefty. Ended up playing on championship teams. Ended up being a great teammate of Jordan and Pippen. And in the gold medal game, actually showed it. Showed that he could play with the big boys. That he wasn't going to be intimidated. And Jordan and Pippen had nothing against Tony himself. They didn't know Tony. And to this day, Tony said, they didn't even know me. What did they have against me? It's like Tony wasn't aware that this was still about Jerry frickin' Krause. So petty and pathetic. So the dream team goes on. They win the gold medal. And there's a whole segment in the documentary about the draping of the American flag. Now, normally I wouldn't make a big deal out of draping the American flag over you when you're getting the gold medal. But at the time, it was the biggest story ever because Michael Jordan was a Nike athlete, but Reebok was an Olympic sponsor. And Reebok was the name on the front of the sweatsuit that the team had to wear 
when they were getting their gold medal. And Jordan put in the documentary that Harvey Schiller was a D blank blank K. I've known Harvey Schiller for since I got into sports. There's a lot of words to describe Harvey Schiller. D dash dash dick is not one of them. The reason that Jordan thought that is that Jordan was told that he has to wear the Reebok because Reebok was the sponsor. Jordan should understand business better than anyone in 1992. He was eight years in the league. He knew the way he fiercely protected his sponsors. He knew going in that Reebok was an Olympic sponsor, that Olympic broadcast revenue and sponsorship is what drives Olympics. He gets paid from those very Olympic sponsors to do commercials during the Olympics. Yet he drapes the flag over the Reebok so it wouldn't show, giving so much more attention to Reebok than it otherwise would have gotten, by the way. So inconsistent of Jordan to do that. So wrong of him to do what he did to Kukoc. So interesting to me that Jordan, for all of his brilliance and brand marketing, didn't understand what the Barcelona Olympics meant to NBA International, to the very value of the franchise that he owns today. It's a disappointing part of the documentary. I got to so you want to talk to Samson about it. And uh, I got to so you want to talk to Samson about the documentaries. So I'm, I'm going with it right now. They showed uh, part of Jordan 1993 against the Knicks. I could go 20 minutes about that series, Eastern Conference Finals. It was the worst six-game series I'd ever been a part of. Well, actually, the last four were the worst. I can't describe to you what a big Nick fan I was. I've told you that I would stretch before games. I went to every home game. I was lucky enough to be a part of it, to see greatness. I was aware that Jordan was better than Ewing, but I wanted the Knicks. I've never loved a team, and I, I ran a team for 18 years. I never loved the Expos or Marlins the way I love those Knicks. I've told you about what it is to be a fan and why I'm so understanding of the emotions of being a fan because I was that. I walked in those shoes. I was not an executive. I was a straight-up fan. The devastating loss of that series, I'm not over it. I meant what I tweeted at David P. Sampson last night in the middle of the night. I am not over that 1993 conference finals loss. And it's not that Charles Smith blew it in game five. The Bulls were better. Their best player was better than our best player. Charles Oakley said it today publicly. I've been in sports long enough to know that if your best player is not as good as the other team's best player, you're not going to win. Patrick Ewing is my favorite athlete and player of all time. It's tough when your favorite is second best. Third best, if you're going to count Elijah one. So during 1993, I'm going up. We're up one game. Knicks win game one. All of a sudden, word gets out on the news that Michael Jordan has gone to Atlantic City. In the middle of a series. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
So you want to talk to Samson. How would I have treated Jordan's Atlantic City trip? Well, let me tell you about the trip, tell you the circumstances, and I'll tell you exactly what I would have done in my first year in baseball and what I would have done in my 18th year in baseball because it's two different things. I'll also tell you what I would have done to a bench player versus what I would have done to a starting pitcher or our best position player. It's wholly inconsistent, and I tried to rule with consistency. I tried to punish our best players the same as our worst players. I tried to apply the rules to our best players the same as I would apply it to our worst players. You can try, but it's not easy when you're running a team. Jordan left after game one. He had not been talking to the media much. He'd been tired of hearing about all of his gambling. There had been a lot of gambling stories, which they did show in the documentary. He had associations with known gamblers. Gamblers. He actually had to testify in a, in a criminal case against a known gambler. We had written a $57,000 check to. Here's a little lesson. You don't ever lie under oath. You can lie to everyone else. You can't lie under oath. Jordan wrote a check saying it was a loan. All of a sudden, he's under oath, and it was a gambling debt. So Jordan would gamble on golf. He'd gamble huge sums of money. After 1993, he was out of basketball for two years. We're going to probably talk about that next week. That's when he played baseball. They showed him gambling at the United Center and taking money from security guards, tossing quarters against a wall, looking like actors from Guys and Dolls. I got the horse ride here. His name is Paul Revere. Yeah, that Guys and Dolls. Ten bucks, twenty bucks, hundred bucks, thousand bucks. The card games on the plane were in the thousands of dollars. That's real. I've seen those card games. I've played in a couple on the team plane. These players play with a lot of money, and it's a relative amount. They got David Stern in the documentary to say, when you lose $10,000 gambling and you're Michael Jordan, that's the same as losing $10 if you're ordinary, middle-class American. The math is right. They showed in the documentary him being interviewed about the gambling, him being asked about the gambling, him saying, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competitive problem. I don't want to lose at anything. And then that manifested itself on and off the court for Michael Jordan. I don't think it still does because he wouldn't still be running a basketball team if he had a win at everything. Certainly competitive. So after game one, Jordan takes off. There's an off day. It's not like baseball. There is an off day. Goes to Atlantic City, gambles, comes home, goes to bed, 12-31, doesn't matter. Wakes up, plays in game two, and the Bulls lose. They're down 2 nothing. People at the time went absolutely crazy. The people who went crazy because Jordan went to Atlantic City were the people like me who were fans. People in the front office of the Bulls were fine. And the reason they were fine is that when you have Michael Jordan on your team, there's something called the Jordan Rules. Talked about on the documentary, potentially leaked by Horace Grant, some sort of discord amongst the players when the best players are treated differently. 
Horace Grant said it wasn't him. doesn't matter who it was. Sam Smith wrote a book called Jordan Rules. There are different rules for Michael Jordan. Basketball is very much more an individual sport than baseball, which is more of a team sport. You're right, Jordan needed Pippen to win a title. You're right, Jordan needed the triangle offense to start winning after Doug Collins left. I get that. For me, I'm not punishing Michael Jordan. I'm 100% fine letting him go to Atlantic City. To wrap up the documentary, it is well worth watching. My review is that if you have not seen any of the six episodes start, if you are a competitor, if you're a fan, if you're interested in not just the old NBA, but the new NBA or sports in general, it's giving you a look. Now, it is a slanted look because it's produced by Jordan, but it is a look nonetheless that will bring you back and give you a better base of understanding. We'll review seven and eight next Monday. I promise you that. ML Beard Challenge. It's day 50. Day 50 is, uh, there are three days for the weekend. We're going to give a thousand dollars a day for a hundred days. You know, the ML Beard Challenge is me and Coke. I've not shaved in 50 days. We will not shave until Major League Baseball has an opening day, whenever that is. We've now had our beards for 50 days. We showed you a picture of Coke at day 39. We'll do it again this week. His beard's getting worse. My beard is, uh, if you're looking at this, I have a definite gray spot, lower left chin, slightly gray, lower right chin. Otherwise, not bad for a guy who's more than a half a century in. So day 50, we have Minnesota, Phoenix, and San Antonio going in reverse order of the Western Conference standings, having given $1,000 a day to each of the major league team foundations. Now we're picking foundations or giving it to the NBA teams in different cities. I encourage you and I ask you, if possible, to donate. I recognize it's hard. Unemployment claims are up. People are scared and nervous. The pandemic is lasting longer. We don't know when sports is starting. We don't know when economies are opening. Jobs are coming back. We don't know when, what it'll look like. But the absolute need is bigger than ever. And those who have any extra, and by extra, you understand it doesn't have to be $1,000. It can be $19. It can be $9. It can be 19 cents a day. It doesn't have to be through a foundation. It can be through giving a bigger tip to a driver who's bringing you taken to your mailman, to someone bringing you your latest of 55 Amazon packages to hit your door. Whatever the case may be, please, if you want to shave, shave. If you want to join the ML Beard Challenge, it's not too late. We got plenty of days left. There's plenty of places in Minnesota, Phoenix, and San Antonio to give. I'm going to be giving to those team foundations for the T-Wolves the Suns, and the Spurs, and we're going to keep going. For a 100 days, we're going to give $1,000 a day, but we're going to keep growing the beard. NFL announced something today that uh, just happened as we were going on the air. The NFL has canceled all international games for the 2020 season. They were planning to go to Mexico City. They were also planning to go to London. This had been rumored the reason why this is coming out is the NFL is announcing its schedule. It's like a holiday. The NFL is brilliant. We give them credit. Major League Baseball, we announce our schedule, and we can't even create 
like a dimple on the seismic scale of tectonic plate movement. The NFL releases the schedule and people call in sick. Could it be that it's eight games versus 80? Maybe. I'd like to believe that, having been in baseball for all those years. So NFL is doing a release sometime this week. I thought it was on May 9th. I don't even know what day this is. I think today is the 4th. Oh, may the 4th be with you. God, that reminds me. I am not a Star Wars guy at all. I have to say may the 4th. If I hadn't said may the 4th, I would have not remembered. People lose their minds today. I remember one funny thing. Totally off the, off the subject, Coca, sorry. But it just occurred to me. As a president of a team, I hated May the 4th. I didn't want to host a game because people would come and Star Wars stuff. I liked a Star Wars night because you could have a few extra hundred group tickets. But a home game on May the 4th brought people out and it bothered me and scared me because I was worried about them passing out in the Florida heat under a Chewbacca costume. I was worried about them in a Stormtrooper costume. Right, We would have fun with the in-game entertainment with it, but I always made sure there were extra first responders, made sure we had a lot of hydration. I never liked it. Never liked it. But I've still only seen one Star Wars movie, by the way. One. It's part four, but for me, it's number one from 1970-something. It's called Star Wars. I saw Star Wars. So the NFL will release its schedule, and rumor came out that they're going to release with no international games which is a shock to the system for some because the National Football League has been going to London for 12 or 13 straight years. The NFL was going to go to Mexico City. And for the first time this year, there would be a team, the Jacksonville Jaguars. They were going to play back-to-back games in London. The Miami Dolphins were going to be a home team in London. The way the NFL chooses the home teams in London is the same reason why the Marlins get to host games internationally. Because when you lose a home game, you get that money replaced by the commissioner's office. So if the Jaguars have six home games in London, in in Jacksonville, and two in London, they get paid as though they had eight in Jacksonville. They get a cash payment for giving up a home game. That is the average of their home revenue per game. Of course, baseball goes to the lowest common denominator because paying the Marlins back for a home game is cheaper than paying the Yankees back for a home game. When they do bring the Yankees and Red Sox to London, which they were planning to do, which they did, and they're going, they were going to go back to London, but it's going to be canceled. If it's been already, it was, I think, Cardinals Cubs. MLB is behind the NFL and that MLB is trying to increase, start and build its exposure. Because by having an international presence, you are getting a bigger broadcast deal. You are getting more licensed merchandise sold internationally. And that is another form of revenue sharing for a sport to have because that is shared 30 ways. By not having international games in London or in Mexico City, the National Football League is losing out on national revenue. International revenue. They're losing out. They're taking a year off, and the statement that came out said it all, but it said too much. There were statements from Tottenham, the chairman, where there were going to be two games, from the head of Wembley Stadium, from the Jaguars, from the NFL, saying we are going to do our best 
we are not turning our back on our international brethren. We are going to make sure that we are working closely so that there is not a two-year gap between games and a lo- any loss of interest because the NFL curve is going up in terms of money and interest. By taking the year off, you are risking that progress. So the NFL will be spending plenty of time, plenty of time coddling to its international fans, plenty of time working with its international partners, because just because they can't play internationally, which there's no doubt, the NFL will be lucky to play with no fans. Forget internationally. So there was no choice but to announce that the international games were canceled. It has nothing to do when this schedule is released this week. It will have nothing to do at all with whether or not it is more or less likely there to be games or for the league to start on time. What it is is the NFL being smart by staying relevant, staying positive, staying in the news, grabbing the attention of its fans in a time when there's a lot of time to be grabbed. So while I'm excited to see the schedule, I recognize that there is flexibility. When they release that schedule, they know deep down they can start the season two weeks late if they have to. Move the Super Bowl, even though that is a major undertaking to move a Super Bowl. Major. Wait to see. I love our wait to sees because we are accountable. We'll tell you what's happening. Either it does or it won't. We'll get back to it. This weekend I found interesting. Antonio Brown posted a photo of in, on Instagram of himself wearing a Ravens uniform. Yes, we've covered Antonio Brown so much on Nothing Personal. He's like a co-sponsor along with Jerry Jones. What team does he play for again? Ah, I know. There are 31 possible teams that he could play for next season. Not 32, because I guarantee you he will not be a Raven. Antonio, stop posting pictures of yourself in other teams' jerseys. That doesn't make team presidents or GMs happy. We don't want you to jump ahead of the game and think that actually you're going to get the fan base all riled up that we'll have to sign you because we'll look you straight in the Zoom virtual face, A.B., and we'll tell you it's just business. It's nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com